Want to know more about what your favorite ninjas have on their minds? Check out the American Ninja Warrior podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts, and it's a great listen for any Ninja Warrior fan. Hello, Managing Madrid listeners. This is your host, Kian Sobani. Today's episode comes in two parts. Part one, Jonathan Johnson, uh, correspondent working for ESPN FC, living in Paris, covering PSG and French football on the podcast to talk about Ferland Mendy, to talk about Paul Pogba, the latest with him, uh, but also to discuss Ndombele and what will happen to him this summer and uh, the whole Al Khalifi, Mbappe, Neymar stuff, the drama that the, the perpetual drama in Paris, uh, essentially. Part two. Uh, it's our segment where we rewatch old Real Madrid games. It's the third time we're doing this. Uh, and this one was about Real Madrid versus Manchester United in 2003. The 3-1 at the Bernabeu. Classic game. One of my favorite games growing up. Zidane at his peak. Raul at his peak. Um, so we talked about that game. Matt Wilson and I, we rewatched it. And uh, we went over it and see how it held up in today's uh, kind of modern football. And we kind of just stacked them against uh, today's teams and see how they would do. It was a fun podcast, always is, when we're discussing all historical Real Madrid games. Some housekeeping. Um, Ferland Mendy, Jovic, Hazard, we're getting that covered pretty much to a T on the site. And School of Real Madrid will be releasing a video on uh, on Jovic and how he fits his strengths and weaknesses um, and how Zidane might use him. That'll be released sometime this week. And for those of you who uh, subscribe to TIFO Football on YouTube, and if you're not, just go ahead and do it. But I also wrote the script for the latest Martin Odegaard video, which is now live on our YouTube channel. We'll probably post it on Managing Madrid at some point as well. But if you're interested on the on the Odegaard situation, his best role, tactical uh, news, and also just the season he had, just a review of his season and, and where he ranks among the other young players in Europe, uh, go to Tifa Football and check out the latest Odegaard video, which I wrote the script for. And uh, one last thing, we're going to do patron shoutouts. Um, there are a few patron questions that have come in for this podcast. We're going to bring them forward to a podcast midweek um, because they're kind of heavy and we just want to give them the attention it deserves. So we'll probably bring them forward and probably record a podcast later in the week and, uh, and go over those patron questions. And if you have any questions from now until then, just submit them to patreon.com slash managingmadrid. And also, that episode will only be for patrons. So if you want access to it, make sure you're a patron. All right, shout out to all of our patrons. Shout out to these specific patrons who pledged $10 or more. Uh, Mikhail Nilsson, Frederick Sundros, John Fernandez, Said Mahad, Nick DeStefani, Adam Dorsey, Frederick Rantakiro, Leon Stavronakis, Christian Gonzalez, Bjorn Salvador, Essa Hariri, Sergio Monleon, Ilian Zacco, Yahya Ibrahim, Willie Reed, Nick Ribeiro, Eric Rogers, Sad Omar, Sheikh Atiri, Oluwapamimo Oladunjoy, Patrick Odayafadi, Christian Toff, Dan Berthy, Armin Gashi, Tarek Sphere, Marin Myrtle, Tyler Dixon, Raghav Potluri, Vicky Cohen, Gary Kohut, Sujai Wani, Pena Maridista, San Francisco Bay Area, Brennan Stevens, Casper Moscala, Catherine Fagundo, Vinod Baratula, Zoran Basancic, Sway Ayala, Crystal Glass, Rafael Servia, Yehin Liang, Karen Scherer, Brennan Powers, Umar Mahadi, Rogi Tariev, Emil, Shabal Sharipov, Fabian Moreno, Varun Magnus Lex, Jason Fitz, Anton Hackberg, and Solomon Ortiz. That list continues to grow. We're going to have to figure out how to best incorporate that into the podcast, I think, moving forward. But for now, just shout out and a huge thanks to all of you. 
And without further ado, here is the Managing Madrid podcast in two parts. Part one with Jonathan Johnson. Let's go. Nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. They're wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. Welcome to part one of the Managing Madrid podcast. Uh, I am thrilled to be joined by uh, a longtime friend of the show, but also an English journalist based in Paris, doing work for ESPN FC, uh, PSG fan, but also uh, a beat writer covering everything from A to Z with PSG, uh, the great Jonathan Johnson. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks a lot for having me back on. We originally, as soon as Mendy signed... Um, for Real Madrid. I, I immediately thought of you to bring you on just to talk about him. And then I quickly realized that this might be the summer of French, um, just a bunch of French a bunch of French dominoes and signings for Real Madrid, given that Zidane seems to really be enamored, rightfully so, with a lot of French players right now. Um, we're going to talk about Mendy, we're going to talk about Pogba um, and Mbappe and Neymar a little bit. But to start with Mendy, because he is the official signing now, um, where did this kind of come from, do you think? Because it seemed like it came out of nowhere in a lot of ways. I mean, there were a lot of rumors linking uh, Real Madrid to him, especially when Zidane came back and especially when the season ended. You have to think that if Zidane doesn't come back, Mendy is probably not a Real Madrid signing. Yeah, very possibly. I mean, I I certainly think for the moment that the signing of Mendy uh, for Real is sort of with with one eye on the future. Uh, you know, he, he had he had two seasons at uh, with, with Lyon after having signed from Lavre. Um, he's you know he's been a very very good uh, acquisition for for OL. Uh, you know, it was kind of expected um, before the end of the season that that Lyon were going to lose um, a couple of their star players, and the questions were, you know, was it going to be Mendy? Was it going to be uh, Fekir, was it going to be Ndombele? Um, Leon came out and said that they only really expected to lose um, two players outside of Fekir, who basically already had an agreement in place to leave the clubs that would make, you know, sort of three big name exits, um, Mendy being one of them. Um, and, and like I said earlier, you know, I think that it's a move that's definitely done with sort of an eye on the future. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not too up on, uh, you know, what Marcelo's exactly position at Real Madrid is at the moment I get the impression that Zidane's arrival has sort of um, you know saved him from what was otherwise looking like um, you know a probable exit mm-hmm. um, but you know he's he, he's a lot older than Mendy uh, you know and Mendy is certainly one who um, you know can only get better and better yes he's already developed and is already a, a very fine player uh, you know but he's still got uh, you know quite a high ceiling for, for quite an attack-minded player you look at his stats last season I mean okay he got a couple of goals in Liga on this season but he didn't pick up any uh, any any direct assists in the league uh, and you know from the season before that he was more of an assist-based player, not really scoring the goals. So, uh, you know, I, that that's shown a bit of a bit of progress in his game, um, but it also reveals certain areas that you know he he could he could perhaps work on. You know, maybe being a bit more decisive. That said, uh, you know, he he has already been part of a, a 
an at times vibrant Leon side. Um, you know, I think one of the most frustrating things with Leon is uh, over the last couple of seasons, you never really know which uh, which, which side is going to turn up on their day when they click. You know, they're they're, they're absolutely fantastic, and Mendy, uh, you know, was a was it was a key contributor in that. But um, you know, they that that doesn't mean that he's the finished article. That's what I would warn Real Madrid fans about. Well, I think maybe that's what's also exciting about him. It's that you know he's twenty four. It seems like he's he was a bit of a late bloomer, and I think, you know, if you if you think about it this way, three seasons ago he was in League League Two, um, so he comes up pretty quickly. And then last season, I mean, and this is coming from someone who didn't watch Leon week in week out, obviously, um, but maybe you have some more insight on it. From what I saw from him in big games, um, I was impressed. And I think that's always a good sign. If you have the mental kind of stability to to thrive under pressure, because he looked good against Barca. He looked good against Manchester City. Um, and he looked good against PSG. In those games that I saw him, he looked good in those big games. And I think it seems to me this is also like he's very much a character guy. Tough, ch- tough childhood, a late bloomer. Um, had one really bad injury, I think, at least when he was uh, a kid in his teenagers, rebounded, got past all of that, uh, and seems to just have like a really good head on his shoulders, which I think, to me, like sometimes we underrate that aspect of football, like that character of like just coming without the baggage and all that annoying stuff that might come off the field. Is there anything that you can kind of just tell us about him and like also his strengths, strengths and weaknesses, but also just his... um kind of the what kind of guy he is in the locker room and stuff like that yeah absolutely you know i think you're right um you know i think that that uh, that early injury in his teenage years really sort of shaped um uh, you know who he would be during his football career and there's sort of like a uh you know it's almost like making up for for lost time i mean you mentioned that he was playing in league Deux, uh you know just a couple of seasons ago you know, I should point out that he was playing with Lavre, um, a club who are known for having a, a very a, a very fertile youth academy. You know, they're very quick to give uh, their young players chances at senior level, mm. uh, and, and Mendy was just one of a number um, of players. I mean, I'm sure people have seen um, in the wake of Real signing him. Uh, you know, sort of the list of players that have come through the, the, the that same youth academy over the years, and you know, it is an, impre- an impressive. Um, list of talent you've got the likes of Paul Pogba in there Riyad Mahrez as well um, Dimitri Payet and uh, and of course Lasana Diara who Real um, fans will, will remember well um, yeah he is he is a very uh, you know he's a very self-assured um, young player he's uh, you know, he doesn't doesn't really have any, any any fear when he goes on the pitch, and I think that's why um, you know when you were checking in on how he did in the biggest matches, uh, you know that's why he's one of the that's one of the why he's one of the key performers. Uh, you know, you look in that squad and you'd expect someone like Memphis Depay to be the guy who steps up and you know and is almost sort of like a talisman, um, you know, in every one of those big matches. But it's actually uh, you know guys like Mendy who uh, you know who are who are the ones playing without fear, imposing you know the the the, the greatest amount of threats uh, for for Leon in those in those games. Like I said, though, um, you know, because of the the, the, the makeup of the squad um, that's you know that's, that's currently being 
um, disassembled and then will be reassembled, uh, you know, didn't really lend itself to, to that much consistency, which is why they perhaps didn't achieve as much as they maybe could have done, considering the talent that, uh, you know, was available to Bruno Genesio. Uh, you know, we'll see how that changes with the new Lyon project in place with Silvino as coach and, uh, and Janino um, back as uh, a sporting director. But it's, uh, you know, obviously it's one that's not going to take place with, uh, with, with, with Mendy. Um, but, you know, Men- Mendy is a good example of everything that is good about Ligue 1 and French football. Um, with the exception of, you know, PSG, a lot of the big clubs look uh, within the league to sort of the, the, the smaller feeder clubs who produce these young talents, pick them up, you know, polish them and then sell them on. Um, and, and Mendy is just the the latest in a long line of uh, good examples of that. Uh, you know, we'll see how long it takes for him to get really established uh, with Real. But he, you know, he's he, he's a guy who spent a long time in PSG's youth academy, uh, you know, and then ended up at Laos for a couple of years before breaking through at senior level. So, you know, he's a guy who, you know, has always had a lot of um, talent. Uh, you know, scouts have always been aware of. Uh, you know the fact that he could blossom into a into a fantastic player. Uh, you know, but I think it needed that sort of bumpy road. Um, you know, to senior level that that, that we talked about earlier. Uh, you know, for for his talents to really you know start shining through. Um, and you know, to be at Real Madrid at 24 years of age. Uh, you know, is uh, is is. is is you know absolutely phenomenal progress when you consider some of the challenges that he's had to overcome uh you know being a being a full france international as well uh you know real seems to have done some very very sensible business even if the 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 price tag when people look at you know perhaps what he's achieved um or not achieved so far in his in his career in terms of trophies um you know, it does look as if it's going to be, uh, you know, a smart, a smart move, uh, you know, in the future. Well, one of the, I think the problems with uh, trying to transition to a post Marcelo era is that you're you're trying to replace someone who's it's very difficult to replace him. Like we went through this with Roberto Carlos, where when he was in his peak, we had no idea like what a world without Roberto Carlos like would even look like. It was kind of terrifying. Then he declined and it didn't look great. And then he was just gone. And then we had like years of trying to figure out, is it is it Gabriel Heinze? Is it Miguel Torres? And kind of just a mishmash of people. And then Marcelo came along. He looks great. And we're kind of in this situation again. I think with, and I think that's part of the reason why Real Madrid is so deep in that position is that they're trying to figure out how to replace Marcelo's offense because it's very hard to do. When I look at Mendy's numbers, it's really impressive, like particularly his dribbling numbers and also like the amount of chances he creates from that left back position. Um, and pe- some, I, I've seen some people and it drives me nuts point to like, well, it's the league that like he's playing in a weaker league. I always hated when people said that about Mbappe when like, because there was a stat that came out, I think that Mbappe at his age now has scored more goals than Ronaldo and Messi did at that age. And all the Ronaldo and Messi fans came out and they were like, well, it's because Mbappe plays in France and like I just he's really good. Like I, I think like people just don't realize like the, it's a very high level regardless. And Mendy's numbers are great. And also we have the track record of all these players. They look good in the Champions League. And the other one I wanted to ask you about, Jonathan, is one of the other standouts to me against in those two games against Barca in particular was Ndombele. And Real Madrid fans also have to think about this world post-Modric when we're kind of already living in it because he hasn't been the same in the past year or so. 
in terms of just everything that a midfielder can do to um, cover defensively, cover for their wing backs, join the attack, and Endombele seem to seems to fit the bill. And I'm just curious if you have any insight on what you think happens to him this summer. Yeah, I mean, he is, uh, you know, he's a very um, sought-after player, um, this transfer window. Uh, there are a number of big European clubs interested in him. Uh, he's not made up his mind on whether or not he wants to, to leave Lyon. I think he's leaving the door open. He likes um, the sound of the, the new project um, with OL. Um, but also at the same time knows that, you know, he could potentially bring in a lot of money for the club, um, you know, if the rights, uh, if, if the right outfit offers, um, you know, the right amount. Uh, and for the moment, Leon are not completely done with, you know, with all of their, their summer sales. Uh, I, I think if they were given the choice, they'd prefer to not lose Endombele for at least another year. Then again, um, you know, with some of the numbers that are being talked about at the moment, they, they, they risk, you know, if he perhaps has a bit of a disappointing season like Fekir has had post-World Cup, uh, you know, then they, they, you know, they might not be able to get as much money for him. Uh, the following summer. So at, at this moment in time, it's unclear as to whether or not he will actually leave. Um, you know, but it is still a, it, it is still a possibility. And yeah, you know, like you said, you know, he's a very complete player, um, and you know, a, num- a number of European sides, uh, you know, could do with that sort of addition to their midfield at this moment in time. You know, he would he would perfectly suit a number of. Uh, a, n- a number of different leagues, uh, you know, and there is still a team in uh, in Ligue 1 that it could also do with that sort of boost in midfield in PSG as well, who, uh, you know, Lyon haven't exactly closed the door to. In fact, um, the Lyon president, Jean-Michel Oles, has, has almost been pushing Endombele towards PSG, sort of hoping to be to get them to, to come to the table and, uh, and, and stump up the cash to sign him. Uh, that doesn't look like it's going to be happening now with uh, Leonardo having coming having come back as a sporting director, I wouldn't rule it out completely, uh, but it doesn't look like he's uh, you know the, the the priority signing uh, for PSG. So obviously that leaves the that leaves the door open for for a lot of other European clubs. But like I said, Ndombele is not completely set his heart on uh, on on leaving Lyon just yet. So you know I wouldn't write off one last season in France with Lyon for him um, but at the same time things can move fast in football particularly in summer transfer windows uh, and it's a question of you know who might be able to you know to, to, to stump up the most money uh, you know in order to secure his signature and considering the the spending spree uh, Real have just gone on uh, you know that looks unlikely for them at least until the at least until the start of July uh, you know when all the all, when all the new season's financial uh, accounts start up. Mm. Um, I'm glad you brought up Leonardo because I, I was curious to ask you how much does PSG's vision um, change with him in now? Um, do you think like when... So also just the context of, well, Leonardo's the sporting director at PSG now. It was announced a few days ago, right? Um, yeah, the, when uh, when So just to kind of bring us back a little bit, sorry for going all over the place, when Nasr al-Khalifi brought up the the quote about, um, he says, players will have to assume their responsibilities even more than before. Um, they are not there to please themselves. And if they do not agree, the doors are open. Ciao. I do not want to have any celebrity behavior anymore. Um, and so like Real Madrid fans took this quote and were like going crazy with it. They were so excited. They started making Mbappe memes. And, like, and, and, and I wasn't, entirely clear if that quote was about any specific player 
because some people thought it was about Mbappe, some people thought it was about Neymar. Um, and then and then um, Khalifi also came out and said that um, Neymar is part of this project. He came here because he wants to be a part of this project and that Mbappe is not only 100% sure that He's not, not only 100% sure that Mbappe will stay, but 200% sure Mbappe will stay. And then that kind of just pours some water on it. How much do you think, A, what was the reason for the initial quote in the first place? And B, how much does Leonardo's arrival just kind of bring that spill in? Maybe that was why they kind of took a turn on those comments. I mean, so, something that I, should, that, that I should point out, and I was saying it ever since the words fell out of uh, Mbappe's mouth at the Ligue 1 awards ceremony towards the end of last season, was that Mbappe wasn't suddenly putting himself in the shop window angling for a move to Real Madrid at that moment. Uh, you know, I think no nobody in Paris is fooling themselves that he's going to spend the rest of his career with PSG. I don't think anyone at PSG is kidding themselves that he's going to be there, uh, you know, and, and, and retire there. You know, I think most people uh, expect that he will one day fulfill his childhood dream of playing for Real Madrid. But what he said at that Ligue 1 awards ceremony wasn't basically a come and get me plea to Real Madrid. Anyone who knows PSG and has followed them um, in the way that I have over the last couple of years knows that you you asked me you know d- does that mean PSG are heading in a new direction with with Leonardo? It's night and day because PSG were going nowhere um, before Leonardo came back in. Antero mm. Enrique was a, a massive failure of a of a sporting director, particularly in his last year. Uh, and you know PSG were were lacking direction, lacking discipline. Uh, and Mbappe coming out and saying that in the at the awards ceremony was basically a call to arms to PSG. It was him ringing the alarm bell and saying, look. You know, this club either has to shape up or I'm going to ship out because he knows that, you know, clubs are not going to lose interest in him overnight. If anything, you know, their their interest will only grow greater, grow stronger. When Real Madrid, when the day does come for Real Madrid to sign Mbappe, they will have to probably commit most, if not all, of one summer transfer windows funds in order to make that deal happen, whether or not. Um, Mbappe signs another contract with PSG before that happens. You know, I'll have to wait and see. I don't think, uh, you know, at the absolute earliest, I don't think, uh, you know, we're going to be seeing that happen until at least next summer. Uh, And even then, you know, I think there's an argument that could be made, uh, you know, that it might even be the summer after that. But, uh, you know, I do think that people expect that this, you know, this is something that is going to happen at some point in the future. And PSG are just hoping that, you know, he will be able to lead them alongside Neymar, um, you know, to Champions League glory before, you know, before that happens. Uh, but, you know, to, to, to I mean, Al Halafi's comments in the last couple of days have been have been very interesting. You know, he seems to have taken aim particularly um, at at Neymar. You know, you look at the comments, how had the difference in severity between the comments over the two players. I want players willing to give everything for the shirt, the club, the project. Of course, there are contracts to be respected, but the priority is now total commitment to the project. Nobody forced Neymar to sign for us. He came for the project. Uh, you know, is a bit different to his comments on Mbappe, where he's talking about how Mbappe wants to be more involved in the PSG project, to grow with the team, with the club. Um and then details how he explains to him that you don't ask for responsibility. You know, you go and get it. You, sometimes you have to take it. And then going on to say that he's 200% sure he'll be staying uh, next season before, you know, 
PSG's end of season got even messier than it already was. You know, it was it was already pretty bad after the Champions League defeat to Manchester United, but there were some, uh, you know, some other sort of unsavoury episodes the, the the later the season went. But before that, um, you know, Neymar and Mbappe were both. Uh, you know, both assured the club that they wouldn't be agitating for moves this summer. They'd be staying put. Um, and then somehow PSG seemed to, you know, fall apart even more uh, internally. And, uh, you know, I I think Mbappe realised that his ambitions for the future, um, you know, sort of where he sees his career going, uh, would be compromised if PSG continued in the in the same directionless vein that they ended last season, in. Uh, and that's why PSG have moved to to bring back Leonardo to to remove Enrique, um, you know, and to to sort of get rid of this um, celebrity uh, aura that that sur- that surrounds the club because it has it's become the uh, distraction. You know, it's become no, it's not even a distraction. It's become a complete. You know, circus at times over the, particularly over the last season. I mean, up up until say March, basically up until PSG sec- played the second leg against Manchester United. Mm-hmm. Okay, there'd been so there'd been some con- controversies, uh, but once once PSG went out to United, uh, and it was obvious that the players just you know had completely lost it mentally. Uh, you know, it 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 you know deteriorated into a, a you know a complete joke scenario. Um, and you know PSG have now got to work out which of their players you know they can sort of salvage in terms of mentality. You know there are some guys who shouldn't have been questioned really at any point, even even in the most desperate moments of last season. Um, I'm thinking of the likes of Marquinhos. Uh, you know guys who uh, you know always give everything even when you know everything's going to hell around them. Um, but Neymar, you know it. <laughs> Even just looking at things logically, uh, you know, it's it's impossible to argue that things have worked out exactly how he and how PSG would have envisaged them uh, since he's joined. You know, he's had two very serious injuries to his metatarsal in two consecutive seasons. Uh, you know, now he's picked up a right um, ankle injury as well. It, it's, it's now going to be a concern for him and for his club, you know, however long that is PSG and whoever that might be afterwards. Um, you know, for the remainder of his uh, of, of his career, in order to handle that properly, he's going to have to, you know, treat himself very professionally. You know, behave very professionally. And some of the things that he's been doing since he's arrived at PSG, you know, just uh, are no longer acceptable. And it sounds like PSG, you know, are going to take those you know those matters in hand. And you know, if anything, players like Neymar and Mbappe should welcome. Uh, you know, these sorts of declarations from Al-Halafi, because at the end of the day, the more seriously PSG take themselves, the more likely they are to succeed in what, you know, they basically signed up to, you know, to, to do with the club. And that's to try and win the Champions League. Uh, you know, we've seen in the last couple of seasons, notably, uh, you know, in the, the season before the one that's just finished, when uh, when PSG obviously crashed out against Real Madrid, and, you know, they are very far away from being. Uh, you know, a genuine Champions League um, title contender at this moment in time, despite the fact that they've got uh, Mbappe and, uh, and and Neymar. I mean, I'd, I'd say on on the topic of, uh, of 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 Mbappe, it's it's been yeah yeah you were t- you were talking about how people 
question Mendy's stats because of you know he's he's playing in Ligue 1 and people don't have a very positive opinion of it mm. but you know at the end of the day Ligue 1 has always fostered some very very good young talents some of the best uh, in world football yeah. uh, and when you look when you look at what Mbappe has done he's somehow managed to double you know his goals and assists return um, in the space of a season uh, you know that indicates he's he's not just doing that because he's because he's playing in a weaker league, you know, he's doing that because he's an extremely good player and he's going to keep doing that. It's very similar to, you know, to Cristiano Ronaldo's sort of explosion um, after he started taking himself more seriously at Manchester United, which obviously led him uh, to Santiago Bernabeu. Uh, you know, the feeling is that this similar will happen uh, with Mbappe as well in time. Check out the American Ninja Warrior podcast for a behind the scenes look at all the action of the show and more with your favorite competitors. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Spencer Hall. I'm Holly Anderson. I'm Ryan Nanny. I'm Jason Kirk, and we're the hosts of the Shutdown Fullcast, your Avengers of college football podcast. It says here in the script I'm to riff on what that means, and basically what I mean is it's all already spoiled. Every Tuesday, we talk about everything from cooking disasters to pro wrestling to unfashionable pants we wore in middle school. We also do talk about college football every now and then, like mascot fights, announcers fleeing the booth early, and unfashionable pants that coaches wear now. If you want to take college football exactly as seriously as it should be taken, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Some of those, I mean... As as harrowing as those PSG exits were in the Champions League, also like I often think about how much this would have been rewritten. Like if some of those fine margin, like little little details had gone PSG's way, like you know if one of those calls goes PSG's way against Barcelona, if you know if X player finishes their chance, or if you know if if, if United don't get that penalty their way, like the margin of error is also just so small. But it also was was big for PSG to let those slip. But I just Sometimes, you know, we, we think about it as a failure. And I, I mean, this is from an outsider looking in, but Neymar's injury, all those calls that went against you um, in, in key moments, I think, you know, it was very... And, and But also, like, the performances you put against Real Madrid in the first leg at the Bernabeu was, like, really good and actually quite terrifying um, against Liverpool in the group stages at home, like, really just dominated them in many ways. Um. Uh, but I think uh, probably for you, like Neymar's injury, is it seems frustrating because you're not sure like if this is just going to be a recurring thing. It's just every time there's like an important run, he just goes down, and I'm just not sure. And that's one of the things that I think scares us Real Madrid fans also is like how exactly what Neymar are you going to get? Are you going to get a healthy one? It, it doesn't. It like the injuries are piling up to a point where I'm just not sure if it's it's worth any gamble at this point to sign him. I mean, let's 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 be totally honest. You know, Real are not going to sign Neymar and Mbappe in the same summer. That would They're be crazy. To, they, they, well, no, but they need to. It, it, it's gone past the point where somebody can do what PSG did because Mbappe's value has. You know, we're, we're talking more than doubled now. Yeah, uh, and and it will only keep on rising. Um, you know, so if Real really wants to 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 get both, they're going to have to probably go for one and then go for the other. You know who who realistically, um, you know, are Real going to place a higher priority on 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 landing, particularly while Zinedine Zidane is uh, is in charge. You know, you could you could you know bet your house almost that Mbappe will be the priority ahead of Neymar. 
you know, considering Neymar's age, um, you know, and his injury record, which could get worse. I mean, okay, of course, it could also improve. Um, you know, there just doesn't seem to be that sort of need for Neymar as much as as, as they used to. Uh, you know, and you know, you have to when talking about Neymar, you have to discuss the elephant in the room as well, which is you know the current uh, rape accusations that that he's that he's facing. Uh, you know, okay. The, the assumption would probably be but that by sort of this time next year, so next summer's transfer window, you know, that sort of thing has, has, has been resolved uh, one way or another. Uh, you know, but, but do, do, you know, do Real really want to, to, to bring in somebody who is associating themselves with a lot of bad press at this moment in time? And it's not, it's not just what's going on in Brazil at the moment. You know, it's, it's the multiple suspensions in the Champions League. Uh, you know, in in France as well. You know, there's there's just a lot of ill discipline um, surrounding uh, you know su- surrounding Neymar. And although he played his role in certain setbacks towards the end of last season, uh, you know, you don't have the many of those sort of similar uh, controversies surrounding Mbappe, with probably the exception of you know missing a decent chance towards the end against Manchester United at home in the Champions League, uh, and also getting that red card in the Coupe de France final. Um, you know, but it doesn't seem to have been this this torrent of, of negative um, attention that the, the Neymar seems to find himself in at the moment. And you know, the best thing for, uh, for for Neymar would be to completely commit himself to this PSG project alongside alongside Mbappe for one more season, and you know, try to rebuild his reputation. Because I've been saying this to a lot of people on Twitter over the last couple of days. You know. PSG aren't open to, to letting either Neymar or Mbappe go at, at this moment in time. You know, that would be, you know, a very bad message to be sending out, um, having started, you know, quite strongly in, in, in talking up this, you know, this revolution, this, uh, this, this reboot of their project. Uh, you know, but it's to, to think that, you know, with somebody like Neymar now, you know, out for, you know, the best part of a month, needing to recover, needing to start again, uh, you know, next, next season is who, who is going to want to invest in that at this moment in time. And certainly who's going to want to give PSG their money back, the money that they spent on it. You know, nobody it's Neymar's value is at its lowest point since he arrived in Europe. Yep. Uh, and he has got a lot of work ahead of him in order to rebuild that. Meanwhile, Mbappe keeps rising and rising, uh, and you know, and for me, it's it, it's it's just a question of sort of where the where the ticker is going to stop, and you know, you know what Mbappe's final final value will be, uh, you know, and how a club like Real Madrid will be able to work out, you know, trying to, uh, you know, trying to persuade PSG to to let him go um, at some point in the future. Um, really quick one before I let you go. Um... Latest on Pogba, do you have anything for us? Um, latest report that I have is that uh, United are just not looking to sell. And that's that's where it ends in Real Madrid. I don't know if they're going to keep trying or not, but you may have, I'm sure you have better better idea than I do. Oh, I mean, everyone saw the quotes um, a couple of days ago where he's, you know, saying that he sort of needs a new challenge, um, mm-hmm. you know, wants to wants a change of air. And yeah, Manchester United are saying that they've no they've no intention of selling. However, I think with, you know, the difference between United um, and, a, and a club like PSG where, you know, they've, they've you know, they they're also 
trying to hold on to the likes of Mbappe and the likes of Neymar uh, is that you know when you get them fit and, uh, and you know and, and back in form, these guys really contribute on the pitch. You know, you look at the the goals that Mbappe got last season. Uh, you know, Neymar's numbers while he was fit, you know, were were still very good. So if PSG can get them back, uh, you know, and healthy and on the pitch, uh, they're not going to have the same problems that United have encountered with Pogba because when Pogba doesn't want to play, you know, he doesn't play. He's he, he you know, it's almost like United are playing with ten men as opposed to eleven. So, you know, I think I mean especially as well when you bear in mind that. Pogba's represented by Mino Raiola. I think it's it, it, it certainly feels inevitable that there's a, you know a fair way to go in this story this summer. Uh, whereas with PSG, uh, you know, with no minimum fee release clauses in either of Neymar or Mbappe's contracts, there's no pressure for them to sell. So if they say these guys are going nowhere, uh, you know, they they're going nowhere. But with with Pogba, despite United coming out and saying that uh, you know they expect him to be with them next season. Uh, you know, you just don't feel, uh, you know, that convinced that a, it's, you know, what they really want to do, and b, it's, you know, actually what's gonna, it, it's actually what's going to happen. I think it's a question of whether there's a there's a club out there who are willing to to stump up the money, uh, you know, to, to to buy him. And you know, you were asking me about someone like Ndombele earlier. Uh, you know, obviously Pogba brings you a lot off the pitch. Um, and can bring you a lot on the pitch as well when he's really invested in what he's doing, um, which is particularly true of, of him when he's playing with the French national team. But if you want a guy, uh, you know, who is who is going to be better value for money at this moment in time, I'd say that a club like Real is better off uh, looking to try and buy someone like Ndombele instead of someone like Pogba. Jonathan Johnson, uh, really appreciate your time, my friend. I uh, hope you can get a chance to relax this summer and to, to recoup. And and once you get past all this uh, transfer noise, then just to also just enjoy the upcoming season. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot for having me on as always and speak soon. All right. This is part two of the Managing Madrid podcast. This is the third segment of our, well, third episode of this new segment where we revisit Real Madrid matches of old. And uh, we, we talk about them. We watch them in full. We bring out the context, talk about all the the different storylines in the game and that that time period for Real Madrid in history. Um, the one we watch for this one is one of my favorites growing up. Real Madrid 3, Manchester United 1 in the quarterfinals of the Champions League in 2003. First leg at the Bernabeu. Um, joining me to break this down is Matt Wilty. Matt, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing great. The Raptors won the championship last night. Yeah, yeah. Um, as the whole world knows by now, and that was a very surreal feeling, very similar to, I would put it just a tier below the feeling of a decima for me. Because, yeah. uh, well, no, there's no love that can replace or, or top my love for Real Madrid. So that's always, you know, that's always number one. But also just the fact that this was 24 years of being ridiculed and mocked as a Raptors fan <laughs> um, that it just kind of went aside for a second and we finally did something cool. Um, I was excited. So this was, this week was my turn to pick um, the Ramja game we were going to watch for this segment. And, uh, and I was interested in Matt to see how this one would hold up because a lot of times when people ask me like, what's the most, um, 
aesthetically pleasing Real Madrid side, like what's the best football you've ever seen Real Madrid play, I often will point to this era and specifically this game as as uh, as some of the most fun I've had watching Real Madrid play ever. And I, I just really like the smoothness and silkiness of some of the touches of Zidane and and the way they linked up with each other and their, their passing and they always dominated possession, but in a way that was really like kind of um, not so much possession-based, but very like just very showboaty. Um, yeah. And and kind of like you saw it throughout this game where they would just kind of just kind of, I wouldn't say toy with Manchester United, but at times would definitely just like the, some of this passing from Zidane and Figo and Roberto Carlos and, and Raul dropping deeper. It was really pretty to watch. So I was curious to know how that would hold up. If that was just me being a kid um, or if that was actually true. And I remember, you know, the next day after this game, after Real Madrid beat Manchester United in the first leg, all the papers in England, everything on the front page, um, everything from the, the, the big the big, uh, the big papers like The Guardian, but also the tabloids um, and, and, the, and the front pages were all about how Real Madrid just completely w- played Man U off the park and outclassed them and uh, so I also just like I knew that there was obviously some validity to how much I enjoyed this game as well tell me tell me your initial thoughts about this game yeah no I mean you, a lot of the points you just made there is exactly what I was thinking watching the, watching the game and Madrid I was, I was just surprised at how much United kind of sat off especially in the beginning Madrid had all of the possession and like you pointed out, Kian, I thought that it wasn't possession just for possession's sake. And it, it didn't feel like it, it just felt like you said showboating, but like there was just a superiority to it. Like you just right. knew these guys were just class. Like Zidane, every time he touched it, it just his class was ever present. Like even on the field, we. We know he's always had that aura. We talk about it with him as a coach, but he always had it as a player as well. And in this game, it was just ever-present. I mean, everything he did was so smooth. I mean, he, he's like the literal translation of a smooth footballer. And him in full flow is just is just beautiful. He's the definition of the beautiful game. And uh, this was one of those Zidane kind of closer to his peak uh, games as well as Raul. And I thought those two were just unbelievable. Right. So I think sometimes I, I make the mistake of uh, just jumping into it without really giving context of what's what we're talking about. So here's my best way of giving context to this game, and please fill in if I miss anything. So this was in the 2002-2003 season, in my opinion, the best of the Galactico team, and a shame that they didn't win the Champions League that year. They ultimately went out to Juventus in the following in the, in the following round, the semifinals against Juventus and Figo missed that penalty in Turin. Um, the, the previous, there's actually a, having said all that, there's actually a case that they may not have been in this position at all because in the round before, in the group stages, and at the time, instead of a round of 16, it was a second group stage. So then they went into that second group stage and they were within, I think, three or five seconds of being knocked out in Dortmund and Javier Portillo scores a goal off the bench in the very last second to I think tie the game which saved Real Madrid's season and got them out of the group stages so they were very close to not even making it this far uh, they got here against Manchester United t- team that 
on paper was actually quite incredible, but also a lot of these players were not the same players they used to be. So I'll just read their starting 11, Matt. Bartes in goal, uh, World Cup winner, obviously. Uh, back four of Gary Neville, Wes Brown, Rio Ferdinand, and Michael Silvestre, which out of the four, really the only person that was good was Ferdinand. Uh, and he got turned by Raul pretty badly in this game. Midfield, Keen, Scholes, and Butt. On the wings, Giggs and Beckham um, and Van Nistroy. All three of those guys, Giggs, Van Nistroy, Beckham, still are pretty high level. And so is Paul Scholes. But I think collectively, there was definitely something missy, especially defensively. Um, they weren't that good. And they, you know, so this was in many ways a heavyweight matchup between two uh, really just the biggest names in football, not only their team names, but also the players on the pitch. It was very star-studded. Um, three future Real Madrid figures there, Van Nistelrooy, Beckham, and Carlos Quiroz, who, were, who was on the bench. He was Sir Alex, Alex Ferguson's assistant at the time. Um, and so Real Madrid's lineup was uh, a four-four-two, pretty traditional. You had the double pivot of Flavio and Makaleli. Zidane on the left, Figo on the right, although Zidane is the most non-traditional left winger you'll ever see, and he spent <laughs> most of his time centrally roaming yeah. around the pitch, um, linking up with multiple players. Raul and OG Ronaldo up front, uh, Roberto Carlos, Salgado, Hierro, Helguera, and Iker Casillas. What did I miss? Uh, did that get enough, give enough context? Yeah, no, I, I think that was everything. and um, I think... As the game wore on, you saw Madrid's shape really kind of morph into a four-two-three-one because Raúl was by the end of the game he was everywhere, but he was mostly dropping deep, playing kind of as that number ten role, facilitating, and then making late runs into the box. Right. Um, the link that we watched this game on it really looked like a a beat up VCR tape. Yeah, it did. <laughs> I it kind of reminded me like I have I had this match on film somewhere at my parents' house. I think if I dig deep enough, and it may have just been my copy, just really like, beat <laughs> up. They had those like those lines kind of just flickering in and out of this. There was this one moment that was frustrating because there was this one. If you go on YouTube, there's like clear like kind of HD footage of like there's a whole compilation of Jussie Dan's touches in this game. But uh, in there was this one moment where Zidane does this really nice move in a tight space with Beckham guarding him. And at that point, the feet kind of cut out. So I was kind of pissed because that was one of my favorite parts. But you can go on YouTube and watch it. Um, one thing, Matt, I always am interested in when we talk about these things. As fun as these games are to watch sometimes, I really... You know, part of me feels that the older generation will... There's actually two, there's two sides of this coin, right? The older generation will sometimes cling to those older players and like say, you know, I, I watched this player. You're too young to know how good this player was. Uh, and then on the flip side, some of the younger guys, they just, they really think we're so far removed from these great players that there's no possible way they could be as good as, you know, that Roberto Carlos could be as possibly as good as Marcelo or, um, or you know, that whoever, you know, just like fill in your your name. Like they, they always, the younger generation will always say that, their players they watched growing up were better than the other ones because they just they haven't seen. I think there's probably a middle ground somewhere. But one thing that I always find interesting is that it. What's clear to me is that the game has evolved now to a point where I think like there's so much more tactics involved. There's yeah, um, the speed and intensity is and aggression is at a certain level that 
it seems more channeled now and more focused and more strategic. So, like, if you look at this game, for example, there was zero pressure for Manchester United. Like, Hierro and Helguera and everyone coming in the back had so much time to build. And and it's not like United, like, sacrificed pressure, high pressure for a compact low block. They were actually quite bad defensively, too. Like, they would... Zidane could literally go anywhere on the pitch and just receive the ball in between the lines and he was booming. He was in dangerous place. So, like, I think some of that stuff still surprises me. Like, 2003, it's it doesn't seem that long ago to me. But I, I just I just wonder, I, I think if you put this Manchester United team in a time machine and brought them, I don't know, against <laughs> Liverpool right now, I think they'd be like, what the hell is going on? Are these guys on steroids? Why are they pressuring <laughs> us so? But they would probably lose the ball like eight times in the first two minutes. Yeah, no, I I see your point, and I I I, can, I agree with it because like you can tell just watching these watching these games, and we we've talked about it in some of the other games as well. Like just the level, and, and it's all it's really tactics. The modern game has just become the level the level of the tactics is unbelievable, and the modern day coach is just the it it's hard to even put it into words because the the IQ tactical IQ of these of these coaches and then transmitting that onto the players and them understanding these concepts and then putting them into work. I mean, that's it's we see it now in the modern day game and it, it's it really does make a big difference. And in this game, like you said, United were kind of sitting off, but it didn't it wasn't like a Simeone type deep block waiting to counterattack. It was just kind of they were biding their time trying to get settled into the game, but Madrid just had full control in the Bernabeu. And um, it, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I mean, you do definitely notice that and I'm with you. It doesn't, 2003 does not seem like that long ago. No, it doesn't. I might, you know, and I think what, like I'd say after 16, 17, that 16, 17 season, I think this one was one of my favorite Real Madrid seasons, even though they didn't win the champions league. Um, but also like, I think I used to discuss, talk about it more when before the three-peat and before the four out of five, because we really had nothing else to cling to. Now, I mean, like we have success in the last few years, so we, we cling less to it, but, um, but it doesn't seem that long ago. And, um, but then again, 2003, I mean, it's not quite 20 years, but it's getting there. And even that is kind of trippy to think about. Um, I was, think I was like around... I was 15 at the time, and um, and so uh, when I'm when you watch the game as a kid, you you're looking at it in a totally different way. You're not really analyzing it. So years later, I, that that's always what I'm curious to see how much it holds up for me, um, and how much my assessment as a kid was accurate in terms of you know. But, but I just you know back then, this is the level you saw. So this was what you knew, and that Ramja were just so dominant, and they were. I think it was interesting that. The, the aggression intensity off the ball from Real Madrid was, was much higher than Manchester United's. Like, for example, you saw Raul's motor without the ball was ceaseless. Um, even old man Hierro, who I, like, I was actually blown away. He's a lot better than I remembered him at that age. He had so many interventions in this game, just stepping up and, inter- and interceptions and tackles. I would love to see his stats. I don't, know, I don't think we have them, but I'd love to see them. Um, well, but also, like, the, like, one of the first few minutes of the game... Um, Makaleli runs up almost to the center forward position. I don't know where Ronaldo was. And he slide tackles a Manchester United player, wins the ball high up the pitch. And that leads to that 
Ronaldo non-penalty, which I think should have been a penalty. So there, it seemed like Real Madrid were more focused on trying to win the ball back than Manchester United were. Yeah, and uh, quickly on Hierro, it, it's funny you say that because uh, I was thinking the same exact thing. And it's he when he, he's like he's that defender that has to make he gets himself in a position where he has to make the tackle, otherwise he's going to get burned and the team's clear on goal. Mm. And he makes the tackle nine times out of ten. Yep. And in this match, it was 10 times out of 10. Like, literally, he steps up. If he doesn't make the tackle, they're through. And he makes it every single time. And you're just like, wow. I mean, that I guess that's how he lasted so long because he certainly didn't have the speed anymore. Or I don't, I don't know if he ever had it. I didn't see him in his younger days. But um, he 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 would make those tackles and just wouldn't have to worry about it. But, I, I mean, I thought the... There was, I felt like there was a clear difference in the first half and the second half. Obviously, Madrid, Madrid scored two goals. We're up two nothing in the first half. Figo had a had a great goal within the first fifteen minutes of the game, which kind of came out of nothing. Like two men were marking Zidane. Um, he then feeds Figo, who just does like a little clip, curled in clip. He was on the left side of the field. Not sure how he got over there, but he was on the left side and just does a curled in clip just outside the box, and it lands in the upper ninety. Um, and so Madrid took an early lead there and then right. The second goal was just like pure, pure route. Was this the second or the third? The one uh, in the box where he turns. Oh, okay. Yeah. So both, well, both of those. Well, the second one. Yeah. He incredible. I mean, he just, he gets, he gets the ball with his back facing the goal. Does like a, I don't even know what type of turn. It's not a Maradona turn, but like just, does a complete 360 with the ball still glued to his foot, keeps it in his path, and then finishes it. Um, and I, I just had in my notes that, like, with Raul, Ronaldo, Morientes, Owen, Ruben Isteroy, those guys were just pure goal scorers, pure strikers. Like, when they got in certain positions, you knew they were going to score. It well, didn't matter. It didn't matter where they were. Like, you, you just knew. Like, as soon as they got into that spot, you're like, okay, goal. And I think that's a difference we see versus modern day strikers as well. I would say probably Sergio Aguero is probably the only one now nowadays that, that that's at that level. Suarez for me misses too many chances to fall into that same type of category. Well, they all those players you mentioned have a specific instinct. Like if you I think the amazing thing about Raul was he made simple things look easier than they were. Like because there was nothing on first glance I don't think there's really anything spectacular about this goal. But then you you analyze it. I, the way he turns, I, he just makes it look so easy. That like you know, yeah, this is just what you do in this position. You turn and then you shoot, <laughs> and it's like, and if you look at the replay, he didn't look up at the goal a single time. Not once did his eyes or head just get up. He just knew where he was. Like he he got the ball. He turned. I believe it was Rio Ferdinand who was marking him, uh, and he just knows where to put the ball. And it's just like this low driven shot at the near post and. And everything, just like every, the touch, the touch away from the defender, the shot, everything was perfect. That also, that that play was also a, an example of just Real Madrid's intensity off the ball. Because Roberto Carlos slide tackles Paul Scholes, wins the ball like just in that zone 14 area where it's like just high at the pitch, right in front of Manchester United's box. Zidane picks it up, thinks so quickly, plays it into Raul, and then Raul turns. And again, doesn't look at the goal once. He just knows where it is. He knows where he is. Um, and then obviously the second goal, I think you were about to break down, uh, 
Yeah. Well, the second goal I just thought was like Raul in a nutshell because he he hounds. I think he wins the ball, driving back all the way into Madrid's half, wins the ball, um, and he did the whole game. He did a great job of kind of shadowing. Roy Keane and picking his pocket from time to time and just really doing that dirty defensive work, which Raul would always do. Um, and then he feeds he feeds it out to Figo, who Figo makes his run down down the right flank, um, takes on Mikel Silvestre one v one, does does a few scissors, and then Raul, who's made probably a 30, 40 yard run, pops up outside on the outside of the box. Figo lays it lays it off to him. He takes one touch to set himself up and then just smashes it into the bottom corner um, from outside the box. And it was just everything. He did the hard, dirty defensive work, then feeding it out on the counter, then making the run outside of the box, and then just doing a typical Raul finish and finding finding another goal. And he had a brace in this match, and I just thought it was a really, really good game from Raul. It was. Um United, I'm just trying, just going back through their chances in this game. They had, they didn't have much going. I thought they were, I thought in the way they kind of were scared and they were bought into the Real Madrid hype. Like it seemed like they went into the Bernabeu and they were, they were just thinking about like you know, just like everything in the British media at the time. I remember was Galacticos this, Galacticos that, listing off all the players that they had, and um, I, I think it, they just kind of went in there with the mindset that we're just not as good as these guys. It really seemed like they, they were kind of low on confidence, apart from that Van Nistelrooy scissor kick in the box early on that goes over the bar. Um, they hadn't they didn't have much going forward. The second half, second half was interesting, Matt, because it seemed when Raul scored that third goal for Real Madrid, the game seemed to open up like right away. Because when, when Van Nistelrooy yeah. equalized, uh, pulled one back at 3-1, then they almost immediately pulled back another one. Casillas saved Rude Van Nistelrooy point blank. And then they, they were just kind of going back and forth at each other. Yeah, I, I literally wrote in my notes, United really haven't done anything. And I, I can't think of one dangerous opportunity. And then Rude scores. And after that, everything got to change. United started having a lot more opportunities. The game started to open up. It was back and forth. And it actually got more exciting after that. The Van Nistelrooy goal, I had never noticed this until I watched it today. Was there a foul on Zidane? Do you, did you see that part? So, like, this all started with Zidane getting dispossessed and falling to the ground. It looked like he got hacked. And he just sat on the ground waiting for a call. And the whole Bernabeu thought it was a foul. United kind of slowed the game down, thinking they were going to get called for a foul. But then there was no call. There was no call. Uh, so then they that was all... In, on the Real Madrid right side, and then Manchester United swing it to the opposite side. Roberto Carlos takes a gamble on, is it Gary Neville who crosses it? I think it was Gary Neville who gets the cross into Van Nistelrooy. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that Zidane fell or not, but I hadn't noticed it until now. No, I heard, so I was actually writing that note that I just said, and so then um, I like my head popped up right when Rude scored, and so then when I saw the replay, um, I think it was Gary Neville who crossed it in, but Casillas actually got a hand to the first shot, right? And then the rebound went straight. Rude was the poacher that he was, got right on top of the rebound, and Salgado was trying to um, stay in front of him, but Rude Rude got there first. So I didn't see this. I did hear the commentators uh, mention that Zidane got dispossessed, though. Right. Um, 
but the, they they only sh- they never showed a replay of it, so I have no yeah. idea. And then I didn't go back and rewind it. But um, there were a f- couple non calls. The Ronaldo one in the first half in the box. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. I when they showed the replay, it looked like he went down pr- a little bit easy there. Really? What about yeah. the what about the Guti one later in the game? Uh, I'm trying to remember the Guti one. The Guti one, I, I think it's. It's either Zidane or Roberto Carlos squares it from the left, and Figo's on the right, and it looked like Guti was trying to dummy it to Figo, but either way, he just got West Brown. I think it was, I think it was West Brown. Just just cuts him. I don't remember bunch. that. Yeah, there was a huge uproar over that one. So there was a few. Either way, it didn't didn't bite Real Madrid in the ass at all. I mean, they they also advanced in, in overall. And the second leg is the one where OG Ronaldo scores a hat-trick. Yeah. What was your thoughts on his performance in this one, though? Um, I didn't, I didn't, I think he was a little isolated at times. Like, Raul was kind of the facilitator, but he connected really well with Figo and Zidane. But I thought Ronaldo just didn't, he didn't get that many touches. And when he did get the ball, he looked good. And he, as always, he, even, we talked about it last time, like, he can just always turn on that that acceleration and that change of speed and um that's so fun to watch and to see him do that is just that's that's why you love ronaldo but i i don't know i didn't think i didn't he was as involved as you would you would want him to be well he he got some whistles throughout the game which is a nice reminder that real madrid fans have always been like this it you know (laughs) and that season for him it was kind of up and down like and I think you know, out of out of everyone that game, he looked at a little bit of a step slow. Um, his, some of his touches and passes were just were just not sharp. On the flip side, he had like one unbelievable run the first half where he where he goes on like this one man brigade and almost does the, comp- oh, the Compostela yeah, yeah. goal like ninety seven. Um, but then his shot is kind of tame, and I think they, there was a deflection on it. it. Took some some sting off, and Bartes saved it. Um, but he got into good positions. But then. Obviously, in the in the second half, that hat trick against United really kind of that that ultimately that I think capped his legacy at Real Madrid. Yeah, um, Th- this was his first half. season, right? Uh, this was his first season. Yeah, yeah. So it was a bit of a, a roller coaster too, because his debut was amazing. It was uh, he scored two goals off the bench against Alaves, and then. Uh, and then he kind of went up now, but he ended up with twenty three legals that year. So like overall, he was pretty damn good for his age. Yeah. Um. Obviously not the same, but he was he was damn good. Like you'd still you'd still bet your life on him, you know, scoring a, in a big game and putting away these tough pressure inducing chances. Um. Well, and yeah. I I I think that's what you you get from these guys. Like it really they really were like. You just felt it. They really were the Galactico. You just felt you do. These were the the biggest yeah. and best players in the world. Every time they, they had a presence, the yeah, they had a presence. And um, one thing I wanted to ask you about though is because we briefly talked about it is just Zidane's role. I thought, I mean, you weren't in this setup. You weren't going to get anything from the middle coming from Makalele or Flavio. So all the chance creation had to come from Zidane and Figo who for the most part were on the flanks, but I think you saw Zidane just pretty much roam wherever he liked and just had total creative freedom. And I guess my question to you, Keanu, would be, do you... I mean, I see similarities to that in the role he's given Isco in the past. Like, how do you 
how did you view his role and what do you think do you think that takes any shape on how he um manages the first team now i never thought of it that way but i think you i think you have you're onto something because this was essentially the isco role was what he played in this game and throughout many games because again he played on the left hand side um, occasionally he played in a diamond too with either Solari or McManaman on the left with Makaleli defensive midfielder Figo on the right. But for the most part, it was a, it was a 4-4-2 with him on the left, which really meant that he kind of just was a free-roaming player. And you saw, especially in that second half, Matt, when things opened up, you never knew where he's going to be on the pitch. And in transition, sometimes he'd be on the right. Uh, he had that sequence where he does the roulette and he's linking up with Figo a few times in the right in transition, sometimes he's going down the middle, sometimes down the left. Um, I don't know if... I don't know. I honestly would be curious to know how much he takes away from his playing days and applies it now, like 15-plus years later. But it is essentially the Isco role in many ways. I think the, and I think the difference is why he was probably afforded more freedom and they didn't get caught out as much is because he had Makaleli and Flavio behind him who were both more defen- obviously more defensive players instead of a Cruz and a Modric. Right. And and also but also you could argue that Isco probably has even on paper anyway, maybe like you know, tactically there's holes, but uh his Isco's coverage of Casemiro and Modric Cruz is much more defensively secure than only having McAuley plus one other player because Figo was on the right wing. So like instead of three midfielders behind Isco, this would be, this would just be, would be McAuley and Flavio's double pivot and Figo on the right, which is not that, who was not that defensive a player who actually like was probably a bit underrated defensively and did some good stuff on the right wing, but he was not, he's not gonna, that trio was much different than a Modric Casemiro Cruz, obviously when Figo was more of a winger than, than a central midfielder. So there's, it's a little bit different in that sense. But I also think, I think in a lot of ways, Makaleli was worth more than one person. Yeah. Like he and was always so good defensively that he could, he could like, obviously like famously after he left after this season, it all felt, fell apart. Yeah. And I think I would, I mean, if you gave, if I'm Isco now and you gave me the option to have Makaleli and Roberto Carlos behind me or Casemiro Marcelo, I would take, uh, Macaulay and Roberto Carlos. Yeah, there's no question. There's yeah. no question. And I here's another question I'll pose for you that kind of popped through my mind watching this game, and having having us watched uh, a couple of other Roberto Carlos's games through this through this uh, segment, and the the debate is always had Roberto Carlos or Marcelo, who's the better player, who's the better fit. And my my question is, or maybe my thought is, I think. For me, Roberto Carlos may be the better left back, but Marcelo may be in his peak the overall better player. What are, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think to me, Marcelo passed Roberto Carlos, um, but it took me it took me a lot of years to get to that point of seeing him, and I think I really I came to the conclusion really after the last three peat, the last year of the three peat. Um, I don't. I. I. It drove me nuts that it that you would have like in the 16, 17 season, and sometimes before that you'd have people be like Roberto Carlos was never close to Marcel. I'm like you just you can't say that. You really can't. It's a lot closer than people think. 
I don't think that any wingback in the history of football actually really does what Marcelo does. Like that, yeah. what his his trait with his offensive and his dribbling and his chance creation is so unique that even Roberto Carlos at his peak was never that. Um, and they were completely different players, really. Like people, they compa- they're compared because they're Brazilian and they were offensive, but like stylistically, they're completely different. Yeah. Um, I think Marcelo passed Roberto Carlos, but I think I think Roberto Carlos had a good like I don't know I would say from '98 to probably 2003, those five years or so, um, really just an incredible level. And in some ways, like the way Marcelo revolutionized that role, Roberto Carlos did too, um, because he really was just an extra attacker from the left back position and was so important. And I don't think Real Madrid would win a lot of the trophies that they did without him because he was so irreplaceable. Like the drop off from him to whoever could possibly play that role um, was astronomical. Like you, you just would pray that nothing would happen to him because he's he was indispensable to the team and his presence. And also, like people, I know people a lot of a lot of people would give him a bad rap for his defense, but he was also the type of person who, like individually, he could keep his marker in front of him. And he was so fucking fast. Yeah. And his and his tree his his legs were literally tree trunks. Yeah. That he could make up ground so quickly. I some of my my favorite Roberto Carlos memories. Like I remember there was one in the Champions League final in the year two thousand against Valencia in Paris, where the the ball carrier has a good like ten yards um on him. And Roberto Carlos sprints back, passes him, steals the ball. Like he he could recover just from his speed alone. Yeah, and I think, I mean, before Roberto Carlos and Cafu, I mean, the fullback position really just stayed at home was probably the position that was given kind of the least amount of glamour, wasn't really considered an important position on the field. And nowadays, I mean, the modern fullback is everything to your team. And we've seen it with, with Real Madrid. I mean, arguably the crucial part of our, our three P was Carvajal and Marcelo being in peak condition. We see it with Liverpool with um, Andy Robertson and Trent Alexander Arnold. I mean, the fullback position now is you're up and down the flank. You're contributing offensively, defensively. I mean, it's everything. And I think, before Cafu and Roberto Carlos, then that that didn't even kind of enter enter into people's thoughts. Um, yeah, in in a lot of ways, I think they revolutionized the role. I mean, there's always exceptions. I think I don't think they were like you know like uh, Carlos Alberto, like in early early like I think 50s or 60s, he was kind of similar to Roberto Carlos. I'm not saying like they didn't exist, but they were few and far between. Like you said. The prototypical wingback was a pretty defensively secure, like stay at home type, you know, yeah. like rigid formation four four two. That was what they did. Roberto Carlos completely flipped that. Um, the Zidane performance this was this was like really him at a at a level like where he he was on another level to everyone else. I think like apart from there was that one terrible shot he had in the first half with his left foot. He had another bad shot in the second half with his left foot that went way over the bar. His con- the level of control he had in this game really just was mesmerizing. And in terms of just like players who are fun to watch, there I don't think there's anyone 
I don't think there's anyone that I enjoyed watching as much as him in my lifetime. I was literally just about to say that. Like, if there's one player I had to choose to watch, it would probably be Zidane. Like, he just, uh, it's just, just watching him play is just, he, pure, just pure football, pure class. Like, everything he does, it just looks so smooth, so elegant, so easy, so nonchalant. Like, I just, I, I love, love watching him play. Uh, yeah, and I think that the nonchalance aspect of it is cool. I've always enjoyed taller players for that reason. It seems like they look even a bit more elegant on the ball. Um, I don't know how, but they just have a certain grace to them, but especially Zidane, but Redondo had it too. And I I think just a player like him, who's actually good in tight spaces, but will completely pick you apart if you give him space. And Manchester United give him space. And so like... I think that they played him and Real Madrid the worst they possibly could by letting him <laughs> just basically do whatever he wants. And by the time yeah. he started to get in transition the second half, it was... Now, like, I, there are arguments that Zidane was like... Some people would argue that he wasn't efficient. He was just nice to watch. Like, he would... Some of his stuff would be superfluous. But I, I just think, like, part of the game is really just to be good at football and not be such a robot sometimes, you know? And I, I like, his... But he was a very efficient player. Like his his passing was always incisive. He would always try to look vertical or or beat a man off the dribble instead of playing it backwards unless he had to. Um, and there's a series on YouTube called All in All in the Touch. And uh, if you just search All in the Touch Zidane, there will be like a bunch of videos that show every touch from Zidane in a single game. So if you search like Zidane Manchester United. This game will come up, but only of Zidane's touches. And then it'll, you, there's different games um, of him. And, and they're all just like breathtaking to watch. Sometimes just if I wanted to just kick back and just watch something really cool, I'll, I'll go back and watch that series because it's nobody, nobody, Matt. I don't, I don't, I'm trying to think. I don't think anybody ever played like him since then. You know, I, I mean, obviously guys like, Hazard, Ozil, they all emulate him, but nobody really, nobody, you know who actually kind of makes me, I mean, he's nowhere near his level, obviously, but the few times I've seen him play, I'm like, oh, you can see it, is uh, Enzo Zidane. You see little, say. yeah, you see little moments where he's like, oh my God, that, that's Zidane. <laughs> yeah, Enzo actually, uh, Enzo actually came pretty close in terms of just aesthetically emulating his dad. Um, yeah, some similar touches and stuff, which I think it uh, it always drove the Castilla fans nuts when I went to watch games at Valdebebas because he wasn't nearly as good as his dad. So a lot of it just kind of looked like it's forced, you know, yeah. just like this. Hey, look, I'm Zidane. I, <laughs> I can do these things. And yeah. um, it just was um, he was not even close. But I'm just trying to look in my notes from this game. Well, what did you uh what did you make of Salgado's performance? A little bit quiet, I thought. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, this was another one where he was really, really quiet. But at the same point, I don't think Giggs really did much either. So they both kind of nullified each other. He stayed a bit I've, back more, right? Yeah, I felt like everything was on United's right and Madrid's left. Like there just wasn't anything on uh, Salgado's side of the pitch. So he, he just he was really quiet. Because even when Figo got the ball, very rarely he'd get that overlap from Salgado. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think some, in some ways, some of the balance changed when Zidane arrived, in terms of how Real Madrid attacked. Because before, um, 
before Zidane arrived, Salgado was a very, very heavily involved player. And him and Roberto Carlos both were like terrorizing on the flanks. Um, I think once Zidane arrived, a lot of that, a lot of the attack went through the left. So like Salgado, I think, I think it would have been a bit too gung ho if they had both flanks and plus the fullbacks, four players pushing up constantly. So I think Salgado's influence got lessened a little bit um, when Zidane arrived. But I also like it is funny you mentioned like even that uh, the game against Lazio we rewatched. He didn't seem to be that that advanced in that game too, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it, he didn't get into many attacking positions in this game. But um, like you said, Giggs didn't really get involved either. Most of United's attacks came from the right through Beckham and Gary Neville. Um, I remember that there was, when I was watching this game as a kid, the commentators were kept on talking about um, Beckham, how this was like, he's becoming a Real Madrid player this season after, which he did. It was not like Hazard level of like it was common knowledge, but like a lot of people were talking about it. And he didn't even play the second leg until he came in late and scored a free kick. Um, because of that reason, it just seemed like it was so obvious that he was a Real Madrid player at that point. And so if you notice, Roberto Carlos would go into the, with these tackles with him and then like help him up and like hold his hand. And like they were all like almost already teammates. Um, yeah. yeah. He, he and Roberto Carlos had a really good relationship even before becoming Real Madrid teammates. And I thought, I mean, maybe this is my Real Madrid bias and my um, fandom coming through, but I thought Rude and Beckham were United's two best players in this game. I thought they caused the most danger, but aside from that, no one else really really caused too many problems. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think Van Nistelrooy was always a scary player to play against. Just because he, like, you just knew that he could not have the ball the whole game and he would just pop up, which he basically did. And then he scored twice in the span of like two, three minutes. And he's one of those strikers that's just a nightmare to defend against because he uses his body so well. So it's so hard. If he gets, if he's, say, his back's to goal and you're defending him and he gets the ball, it's so hard to, he can turn you, he can just use his body to hold you off. Like, it's so hard to just try and get a foot in on him, try even see the ball if he uses his body well enough and makes himself big enough. So I, I remember one sequence, I think it was Helguera, who in this game was, uh, had made the transition to center back instead of center mid. Yep. And, um, I think this was just the start of his transition, and he uh, he he definitely struggled with it a little bit. I really wish Twitter and Reddit were around for a game like this, or just that era in general, because it would it would be so much fun, and like we'd have so many so many different talking points, and just the interaction with both fans heading into this game. I'm sure both <laughs> fans, sets of fans, would have been would have been boasting about their stars, their own stars, and their irrespective sides, and also just like some of the stuff in this game like without VAR without social media like with Bartez kind of casually handling the ball outside the box in the first half yeah I it looked pretty clear to me that that ball was outside the box and he just brought it down and the referee was like mm, I don't think that happened so it was just, let's just ignore it um, one of the things that I always thought was amusing and hilarious about Figo was that every time he dribbles past someone and he feels even like a brush on his shirt or a shoulder or like even the slightest inclination of that he might be getting held. 
he just stops playing and then puts his hands in the air and looks at the ref. <laughs> yeah. And the ref's like, oh, okay, I'll call a foul. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just, he does that so much. He did, it, he did that in this game. But if you go back to look at any Figo game, this is the one trait he has that he just coaxes the referee into thinking, like, how, why would I possibly stop dribbling if I hadn't been fouled? And he just stops. He looks at the ref, puts his hand out. I've seen him do that. And literally the ref looks at him for a couple seconds and then calls a foul because <laughs> he just feels obligated to do it. It's like a death yeah. Well, I thought, I mean, I thought Figo in this game had uh, roamed a bit more than ISIS. Like we talked about on the on the goal, he was on the left side and mm-hmm. he made a lot of incisive runs through the middle. And I, I mean, I'm when I think of Figo, I just think of him as glued to the wing and kind of... Um, Working, working those flanks, but he uh, he made a lot of incisive runs in this match. Well, he was in the he was one of those players that was definitely interchangeable. Like he was obviously, let's say, ninety percent of the time on the right. But even when McManaman was there, they would often switch flanks, and he would go on the left. Um, he would do when was, Beckham came, he was on the left too. Yeah, when Beckham came, um, and then also at Portugal, he would go to the left often. He was also good going down the middle. Um, scored some great goals going down the middle too. So he was versatile enough to do that, I think. And that's what kind of made this Real Madrid team fun. It was pretty dynamic and fluid um, because you have three really mobile players in Zidane, Raul, and Figo. And then you always had that one traditional striker like OG Ronaldo or Morientes um, to kind of to just be where he needs to be. So it was it was definitely a fun, fluid team. Yeah, no, do, you, I, uh, do you have any other ahead. notes on this? Uh, let's see. I think we ran through most of them. Now, the only the only other thing I had was, and just kind of a Raul talking point, mm-hmm. um, and more so. I feel like this game wasn't uh, a a good example of this, but more so in his later in his career post peak. I felt like post peak his game was more about those small details, like those higher level details that go unnoticed. His movement off the ball to create space for teammates, his defensive work rate, his high tactical IQ to be in the exact right position at the right time. Like those things were kind of and you talked about it on his goal even. Like it, it's something that looks like, oh yeah, I would do that. It's simple, but it, it's really not, and it kind of goes unnoticed pretty easily. But th- I feel like that—that's just so Raul, especially post peak. Like he—he he had all these qualities that were kind of unheralded, but they were so so important, and is what made him so good. There was so much about Raul that he has these little intangible things that made him special. I think the most shocking thing, if you told us that year. Even especially like right after this game, you would tell us that the following year all of this wouldn't exist because Raúl started his decline the next year, and I, I, it's kind of unbelievable too because he was 25 during yeah. this. That's game. That's the thing. Like I, like my years of watching Raúl were pretty much this year and on. Like I, most of the time I saw Raúl was post peak, and like so I, I think of him in a different way than you probably think of him as a. Young, because his best years were when he first started out as like a seventeen-year-old and on, and um, now, like he, later in his career, he was, he was a different type of player. Yeah, completely different. And um, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we know why. I don't, I don't really know why. Because he just kind of, I think a lot of it had to do with some of the marriage problems he had the following year. I think it's, you know, we we know why. Hmm. 
the good hair. You know why? Yeah, the yeah. yeah. The hair was always the a bad hair, idea. Yeah. <laughs> hair was a really bad idea. Um, yeah, the hair was a terrible idea. It's very similar <laughs> to Gareth Bale. Yeah. Oh, they they should have never. The so one person who I think should have kept it though is Isco. He's yeah, never he, played better, until, and then when he cut it, he lost it again. Isco, the the whole the whole shaggy beard hair thing worked for him. Yeah, it definitely worked for Isco. Doesn't work for everyone, but I, if you have a, if you're playing the best football of your life in a certain style of hair, just keep it. Don't you mess with it. it. Don't mess <laughs> with it. Um, yeah, I think it. The whole everything fell apart after this. Really, um, they went <laughs> they went into. The second leg lost, but obviously the OG Ronaldo hat trick, they kept it up. Hierro, by the way, after this run, actually in this game, who looked really good, scored an own goal to Old Trafford. Could absolutely look like a turtle trying to keep up with Nedved against Juventus. <laughs> they get knocked out. Um, Figo declines quite, quite drastically the year after. Zidane declines. Raul really declines. OG Ronaldo was still good. Uh, Makaleli's gone, and that was like that was it. Yeah. Um. Then you saw like we 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 covered the the game against our goals in the Copa del Rey in oh five or oh six was it? Oh six. Oh five. Oh six. Oh five. Oh six. Um. And uh, a lot of great players on paper. It just it, they were at their twilight twilight yeah. of their careers. So. Not all of them, but most of them. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Matt, I think we've exhausted this game. I think so. Um, this was fun. Always is. Um, this is one of my favorite games growing up. Um, and it was uh, a lot of beautiful football played, a lot of players in their peak. So it's uh, it's one that will always be special to me, and I'm sure many other Monadies does. Uh, unfortunately, Gabe couldn't come on this podcast, but I believe he was at this game. I assume, I don't know for sure, but I assume Ed Ed also was at this game because he's been at like every game forever. So <laughs> I it would have been cool to get them on the pod too, but maybe we'll be able to pick their brain afterwards um, about it. All right, Matt, Matt, we'll see anything to plug before I wrap it up. Uh, yeah, I'm sure at the time listeners listening to this now, since this is part two, I've just heard you and Ohm talk about Mendy. Um, I also recommend that everyone check out. I just wrote a, a background piece on Mendy and kind of his story, and it, it is truly incredible um, what he's gone through and the <laughs> the the ups and downs and kind of the dark past he's had to fight through. And so, if you haven't read it already, definitely check it out. It, it's a it's a it's a good piece. Uh, Furlan Mendy, a story of resilience. That's on managingmadrid.com. Matt Wilsey also wrote a background about uh, Jovic. Yep. Um, a while back that's still on the site you can got to scroll down a little bit for that one but um, <clears throat> um, and then also we have Hazard articles so we have Hazard Jovic and Mendy covered pretty well I'll do a Mendy article at some point but um, we've been busy so keep it locked on managingmanager.com thank you for listening and Hala Madrid Hala Madrid